Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me if you have your Bibles with you to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Have you ever had someone come up to you and ask you if you have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What do you say? It's a pretty popular question today and a controversial issue. In fact, an issue that I think is very much misunderstood today. And usually those who ask that question take a position something like this. I am saved at one point in time, and then later I receive the Holy Spirit, that experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, And the way that I know that I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that usually, some would say always, you speak in tongues as the evidence that you've experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you ask those people, well, how do you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You will get a variety of answers depending on who you ask. Some people will tell you that you need to pray need to ask for the Spirit. Others will say you need to repent. Some will say it takes acts of obedience. Others, humility. Some say sinlessness or self-purification. Some would say yielding. Others, faith. Others, emptying or leaving all or being fully consecrated or going all the way or abandoning or waiting. All these ideas involved in the receiving of the Holy Spirit after a person is saved. Now, where do they get that idea from? Well, it comes from the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, if you had to ask me whether the disciples were already saved, as we enter into the book of Acts, I would say yes. Jesus said to them in Luke 10, 20, to rejoice because their names are written in heaven. That sounds like a saved person. When you come to Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to the disciples in verse 5 to stay in Jerusalem and to wait until they are baptized not many days from now, baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then when we come to Acts chapter 2, we read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There was a noise like a violent rushing wind. There were... There appeared tongues of fire over their heads, and they spoke with other languages. So there was this idea of salvation, then a delay, and then the coming of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, we're told how Philip led many in a city in Samaria to the Lord. They were saved, but they did not receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came from Jerusalem laid hands on them and prayed, and then the Holy Spirit came. And some would look to those two examples in the book of Acts and say that's the norm for every Christian. Every Christian should get saved and then at some later date have this experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is that the case? Well, I would say no. Why? Let me give you several reasons. Reason number one, to say that the book of Acts 
presents the normal pattern for receiving the Holy Spirit is not even consistent with the book of Acts. Because there are examples in the book of Acts quite opposite of the examples I just gave you. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, when the early disciples waited to receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, it says Peter preached, and you remember 3,000 people got saved. We're told that they repented, they were baptized, and Peter promised if they did that, they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There was no delay. They received the Spirit when they believed, which I would argue that's the norm in the Christian experience. In Acts chapter 11, in fact, look at that with me. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 describes how Cornelius, a Gentile, was told to send for Peter. And verse 15 tells us that while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Now what was going on here? Verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter was speaking. He didn't even get finished with his sermon. And the Spirit of God came upon them because they believed. You see, salvation and baptism with the Holy Spirit were simultaneous. So to argue that this is the norm for the Christian to have a delayed experience for the Holy Spirit to come is not even normative in the book of Acts. That's reason number one. Reason number two, it's not supported in the epistles. There's an important principle in interpreting the scriptures, and that is when you find an example in the book of Acts, you can't call that normative for the church or absolute for the church unless you have directives in the epistles confirming that example. And when you look to the book to the the letters that are written, you don't find any directives to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In fact, you need to understand the book of Acts is a book giving an account of the transition of the church. It's a transition from law to grace. It's a transition from the synagogue to the church. It's a transition from an all-Jewish church in Acts chapter 2 to a church made up of Jews and Gentiles and, and people from every tongue and nation and tribe. And so that transition is taking place in the book of Acts. In fact, you can find two examples in the book of Acts where Paul kept a Jewish vow. Is that normative for Christians? No. In fact, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, we're told that we're not to take an oath. And, but, but Paul did in the book of Acts. So you're going to get in trouble if you go to the book of Acts and say, here's an example, I'm going to apply it to my life and everyone else. It needs to be confirmed in the New Testament epistles. And nowhere in the epistles does it indicate that there should be a gap in a person's experience between the time that they are saved and the time that they receive the Spirit of God. You are, not, you are not commanded anywhere in the epistles to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You are not even exhorted anywhere in the epistles to ask for the Holy Spirit. 
What we have is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 where it says, by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's a statement, and if you notice, it's past tense. It already happened. And he's speaking to the most carnal Christian or most carnal church in the New Testament, and he's not saying, you guys need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you already had it because you get it at the point of salvation. It's simultaneous. And then the third reason. Number one, if you're going to go to the book of Acts to find something normative for every Christian, you're going to find that this isn't even consistent in the book of Acts. Number two, it's not commanded in the epistles of the New Testament. Number three, if you are saved today and two or three weeks from now you receive the Holy Spirit, what are you in between? Are you saved? Well, you couldn't be. Because Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you can't be saved and not have the Spirit of God. And so my argument is that salvation and spirit baptism have to be simultaneous events. You still out there? Okay. You're awful quiet today. Now, to answer that objection, some people would say that when you believe on the Lord Jesus, you get a little bit of the Holy Spirit. And then later, when you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you get all of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a big problem theologically because the Holy Spirit is a person. And so you don't get bits and pieces of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to get part of him now and part of him later. You either get all of him or you get none of him because he's a person. Others would say, well, you get the Holy Spirit when you're saved, but you don't get his power until you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not consistent with Scripture. In fact, Jesus said, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will get what? Power. Power comes with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples had not received the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus kept telling them that I have to go away before you're going to get the Comforter. In, Acts chapter, or in John chapter 16 and verse 7, he says, Unless I go away, he cannot come. If I go away, I will send him. So Jesus did not send the Spirit until he went away. He ascended into heaven and sent the Spirit back on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so there was not part of the Spirit here or the Spirit here with no power. There was no impotent Spirit that they got before and then got the powerful Spirit. He came after Jesus ascended. In fact, in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 in verse 16, Peter and John prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and there's this commentary given there in verse 16. It says, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had not received the Holy Spirit until that point in time. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs when you receive the Spirit. And if that doesn't happen at the point of salvation, then you have some big theological problems. Because you've got a category of people you're going to have to call 
unsaved believers. Let me show you another verse. Look at Matthew chapter 3. And I'm taking the time so you can understand this this morning because this is a crucial issue for you to wrap your mind around. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. John the Baptist is speaking. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, speaking about Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, a lot of people misunderstand this verse. And they say this means that Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire that appeared on the day of Pentecost. But that's not what he's talking about. You say, well, how do you know that, Dan? Well, look at verse 12. Because he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What fire is he talking about? He's talking about the fire of hell. So there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are only two baptisms. There, is the baptism, there are those people who are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and there are those people who are going to be baptized in the fires of hell. And there's nobody else. There's no in-between category of Christians who don't have the Spirit of God. You're either baptized with the Holy Spirit or you're lost. Those are the two categories. Fourth reason that I would say that it's inconsistent to make the argument that you're to be saved and then later receive the Spirit comes out of our passage today. Whereas I said earlier, Paul writing to this carnal church says you were all baptized with the Holy Spirit, past tense. And there is no other category. Salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit occur simultaneously. Now you remember in this chapter, Paul is discussing the unity and diversity in the church. We have many gifts, but they all come from the same Spirit. We have varieties of ministries, but we serve the same Lord. We are unique, but we're not separate. And Paul wants to illustrate that, and so to illustrate that, he uses the illustration of the human body. And I'm not going to go into this in great detail today because he's going to use this analogy all the way through the rest of this chapter. In fact, let me just tell you that the Greek word soma which is translated body, is used 18 times in verses 12 to 27. So he's going to expand this illustration about the body, and we'll go into that in more depth next week. But I want you to notice how he begins in verse 12. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, this is an easy illustration for you to understand because he's talking about your body. And I really consider the body the pinnacle 
of God's creation. There's nothing more amazing, there's nothing more complex than the human body. And his point in verse 12 is that the body is an organic whole. It has a common life principle, and yet it has great diversity. Your body is one, and yet it has many members. And all the members of your body are diverse. You know, it's interesting when you think about your body that even the members that are duplicated are not exactly the same. You have two feet. Your feet are not exactly the same. They're not the same size. That's why, do they still have that nearly perfect shoe store? That's why some of you can go in there and get a great deal because, you know, one foot is 10, the other is 10 and a half. And it works for you. You have two eyes. Your vision in each eye is probably not exactly the same. You're either right or left-handed. Some of you may be no-handed. But my right hand is much more athletic and agile than my left hand. I try to hide it. Always did in sports. If you take, uh, I don't know, is it the magic house where you can do this? Now you can probably do it on your computer. Uh, if you've got Photoshop or something, take, take your face and take half your face. Take the left side of your face and put it with, flip it over and put it with the left side of your face and see how you look. You'll look totally different. Take the right side and put it with the right side and put it together. You'll look like a tur- totally different person because the left side of your face is different than the right side of your face. So even in our body, when we have duplicate parts, those duplicate parts are different, and that's his point here. There is diversity in the body, and yet there is unity in the body. And he says, notice at the end of verse 12, so also is Christ. Now, is he talking about Christ's physical body here? No. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church. You say, well, why doesn't he say so also is the church. Well, because he wants to make his point. He wants you to know that you are Christ. You you are the body of Christ. You know, Christ came in his physical body. He lived. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. In his glorified body, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He was incarnation one, But there is an incarnation too, and that is you and I in the body of Christ. He is the head. Jesus is the head. We are his body. And so I love the fact that Paul here says, so also is Christ, and he's talking about you and me because we are the body of Christ. And his point is there is diversity within the body of Christ, and yet we are one. We are unified. It's kind of the way my body works. I'm... I'm not big on sweets, but I really like salty stuff. So when, when I get a little hungry, I've got a, a jar of mixed nuts. I like those things. But if I'm sitting on the couch, my stomach kind of starts to growl a little bit to let me know that I'm hungry. And my feet get me up and walk to the kitchen, and my hands grab that jar and twist the top off. And my mouth chews it. And my tongue, on behalf of all of my members, says, Oh. 
See, there's a diversity of members there. We're all working together for the common good because we all want those nuts. And he's saying that's the way it is in the body of Christ. We're all diverse, but we're not separate. We're one. And we should have a common purpose and a common goal together and be working together within the body of Christ to accomplish that goal of glorifying him. And what is it that unites us? Look at verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. How do I get into the body of Christ? You are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Now, let me say something about verse 13. Some people, every time they see the word baptize, they think of water. Verse 13 is a dry verse. It's not wet. It's dry. There are gobs of people who have been baptized in water who haven't got the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist prophesied about this baptism long ago when he said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Spirit baptism is when the Spirit of God takes us and immerses us into the body of Christ. Spirit baptism happens when he unites us to Christ. And how many Christians have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Verse 13 says, all. You see, if there's a category of people who are saved but don't have the Spirit, then it messes up Paul's whole point here. Because his point is, we've all been baptized with the Holy Spirit, making us all one body, and so we're all united, even though we're diverse. And that's his point in this passage. Every believer has had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what is the condition for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Look at John chapter 7 with me. I'm making you work today, but you'll be glad I did. John chapter 7, verse 37. It says, Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He says, if you believe in me, you will receive what? Rivers. When he talks about the rivers, what's he talking about? Verse 39, he's talking about the Spirit. And how do you get the Spirit? Verse 38, if you believe in me. If you believe in me, you'll get the Spirit. And how much of the Spirit are you going to get? You're going to get rivers of the Spirit of God. Look at one other passage, Acts chapter 11. Verse 15 tells us as as Peter began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Verse 16 says this was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 17. 
Peter says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And I like this because Peter, Peter's kind of being honest here. Uh, Gentiles are getting saved and getting the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's telling his Jewish brothers, I tried to stop God, but I couldn't. It was a God thing, and I couldn't get in his way. If I had, I'd have been run over. But his point is, what did they do? They believed, and they got the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when someone asks me, have you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I always say yes. Because every believer has had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there are no exceptions. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He goes on in verse 13 to say, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, no matter what your background, no matter what your culture, no matter what your race, we are all baptized into one body. We are one. And then he adds, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, when you drink, what do you do? You take something in. So not only have we been placed into someone, Christ, we have had someone placed in us, the spirit of God. So I am immersed into the body of Christ, and I am indwelt by the spirit of God. The spirit of God puts me into the body of Christ and puts himself into my physical body. That's exciting. You say, well, Dan, how do you explain the the couple delays in the book of Acts? Well, let me explain that to you. I'm glad you asked. In Acts chapter 2, they had to wait because the Spirit had not been given yet. Jesus said, you can't get the Spirit until I ascend into heaven, and then I will send him to you. So in Acts chapter 2, they're waiting. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was the birthday of, of the church. It was a one-time event. Just like the coming of Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He doesn't need to be born every two weeks. He was born once. He died once. He rose once. Those are historical events. The Spirit of God came once on the day of Pentecost. But what's interesting is Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. And there, is a, there are stages in the giving of the Holy Spirit which reflects the transition of the church in the book of Acts. He came upon all Jews in Acts chapter 2 because that's where the church started. It began in Jerusalem with the Jews. When it expanded to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, it's interesting because Jews hated Samaritans, So they believe in Acts chapter 8 and receive the Holy Spirit, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John come from Jerusalem to Samaria, lay their hands on them, then they receive the Holy Spirit. Why? So that Peter and John could witness the fact that Samaritans were actually saved and receiving the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit they received. If that didn't happen, you would have had your first denomination. You had the church in Jerusalem and the church in Samaria, and they never would have gotten together. Peter and John go there. They witness the coming of the Holy Spirit and the phenomenon of tongues, which parallels what happened in Acts chapter 2. And they knew this is what happened to us at the beginning. 
And so it confirmed to them that Samaria was part of the church, and it also let the Samaritans know that they were under the authority of the apostles at the church in Jerusalem. And then the next account is in Acts chapter 10 with the Gentiles. Peter was preaching, and they received the Holy Spirit. Again, now you've expanded to the Gentiles. This is the uttermost part of the earth. And Peter says in Acts eleven fifteen, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning. What's happening? Stages of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Happens on, in Acts chapter 2 with the Jewish church in Jerusalem, expands in Acts chapter 8 to the Samaritans, just as Jesus said it would, and then in Acts chapter 10, the expansion goes out to the Gentiles, and the church is now reaching out to the uttermost part of the earth. And you have one other example in the book of Acts, and that's in Acts chapter 19, and that's where Paul runs into some guys, about 12 of them, who were John the Baptist's disciples, and when he asked them if they got the Holy Spirit when they believed, they said, well, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. And obviously, they didn't know about Jesus. They had been John's disciples, and somehow they dropped out and didn't get the whole message. And so they are sort of a defunct group that he brings into the process. And so as you read the book of Acts, you see in Acts chapter 2, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost expanding to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 10, to the, or in Acts chapter 8, to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And then they pick up this sort of odd group, John the, ba- John the Baptist's disciples that got left out in Acts chapter 19. Very important to understand that progression in the book of Acts. You say, well, Dan, what are people experiencing today? When people say, well, I, I had this experience, well, let me, let me tell you what I think they're experiencing. I think they are experiencing not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they are experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He makes a contrast between being drunk with wine. Anybody ever been drunk with wine? Don't raise your hand. When you're drunk with wine, you are under the control of that alcohol, and it controls the way you talk, the way you walk, your confidence, your boldness. It affects everything about you. And he's saying, don't do that anymore. Rather, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? You experience him being in control, and he affects the way you talk and the way you walk, and he gives you new boldness in your life because the Spirit of God has that impact on you. That's an experience. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an experience. It happens at the point of salvation. You may experience nothing. I've seen people get saved, and they don't even shed a tear, and I want to slap them, say, this is good. You should be happy. But they really don't understand that until later what's really happened to them. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's an experience. That's him taking control of you. But again, let me underline this. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not me getting more of the Spirit. It's the Spirit getting more of me. Very important. We talk about, you know, Spirit come and fill me. Well, He really doesn't have to come and fill me because He's already in me. All of Him is in me. I just need to let Him have total control of me. And when I do, He fills me up and takes control. He wants to do that. The only problem is I tend to hold back the Spirit of God. 
So to be filled with the Spirit of God is, I think, the experience that people often relate to, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's a confusing thing for them and for us. So my challenge to you today is to understand if you're a believer, you have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He has immersed you into the body of Christ. And he is inside of you. All of him is there. The command we do find in the New Testament, and it is a command in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let him fill you up and take control of your life so that you walk in his power and experience the power that Jesus promised that you would have when he's in control. I'm going to have the praise team come back and sing. They're going to sing that song, We Are Hungry. And be careful with the theology with this song because I think this is one that says, come and fill me. So as we sing that, I want you to understand he's already here. He's in you. That you need to not get more of him. You've got all of him. You need to give him all of you. Let's stand as we close today and make this our prayer to the Lord together. There are some, I think, that want to join today. You come down as we sing. I'm also asking Nicole if she'll come down uh, today as well. Let's, let's uh, make this our prayer to the Lord.